When I'm talking to a new group, I kind of like to get a feel for who I'm talking to. And I found there's one question I can ask that pretty much divides the world into two groups of people. There are dog people and there are cat people, right? How many of you are dog people here tonight? Right? How many of you are cat people? Brave enough to admit it. There we go. All right. See, the dog people almost always win. And I kind of think that's objective. I've had nothing but dogs my whole life. I've never had a cat. And when somebody tells me I have a dozen dogs, my first thought is, oh, you have a kennel. When they tell me they have a dozen cats, my first thought is, oh, you have a mental illness. So um, <laughs> if you're a cat person, that's just dog person humor. All right, don't take, I'm not, I don't mean it. But having only had dogs, I I ran into a circumstance I never thought marriage could possibly lead me to. When my wife and I were a much younger family, we had just one daughter at the time. We rented this old little rundown house that was right next door to a Baptist church that owned it. We had a shared driveway and another very rundown house that was rented by a single gal with her cat named Remington. And Remington sort of became everybody's cat. He would just roam and claim the property, as cats often do. And one day I was in a hurry to get to the library. I had a lot of studying to get done. As I'm pulling out of our shared driveway, right out in the front of the street, right in front of the driveway, I I saw Remington. He had been hit by a car or a truck or something overnight. I thought, I I can't just leave him here. So I, I parked my car. I went to our neighbor's house, knocked on the door as gently as I could, Tried to explain what I'd seen. She came running out and saw Remington and and that started her crying. That drew my wife's and daughter's attention. So they came running out and and they started crying. So now I'm practically crying. Not between you and me that I care that much. There's one less cat in the world. But I, I wanted to support my wife and my daughter and certainly our Christian neighbor. And then they decided we needed to have a funeral for Remington. As a seminary, I wasn't sure about the theology of having a funeral for a cat, but I thought, what can it hurt? So we went out back, shared a few words. I kind of had to hold my tongue there, particularly when somebody said he seemed like an unusually smart cat. I thought, he just got hit by a car. You know, he's a cat. You think he could jump out of the way? And so we finally got him in the ground and shared some words. I thought with some degree of sensitivity, I could finally go off about my day. So my wife and daughter peeled off into our house. Our neighbor peeled off into hers. And just as I touched the door handle of my car, I heard this scream from our neighbor's house. I ran up the steps and she's looking at me, white-faced, ashen. I mean, she, she can't even speak. She just points at her couch and I turn my head and look. And there sat Remington waving his tail. (laughs) We buried somebody else's cat. To this day, we don't know whose cat we buried. I mean, it, it was amazing, the similarity markings in the ear and the tail. I mean, granted, the cat we buried had been hit by a car. So it, but, but it was just, my first funeral was a complete farce. That's what I had to, to deal with. But if you had told me earlier in my life that part of being a supportive husband would be having a funeral for a cat, I really couldn't imagine a scenario when that would happen. And the reality is marriage leads us into a lot of experiences we can't even begin to anticipate. I was here last night talking to the singles and that's one of the questions is that you don't know what you're going to face in this life where it might be some catastrophic medical crises, unemployment, childlessness, the death of a child, the sickness of a child. I mean, things that you you don't have a clue. 
And you don't as a single get to choose what you will face in this life, but you do get to choose by God's mercy who you face this life with. But for those of us who have already made that choice, we'll find that marriage will bring us into many experiences we never anticipate. And where I want to begin to focus this morning is one experience that, that nobody had warned me of. It completely caught me off guard. And that's the spiritual challenge of marriage. That when we get married, we will begin to see a side of ourselves that we didn't even know existed. I was caught by surprise, even though my wife and I had actually had some very good premarital counseling. We had a campus pastor who was serious about it. And we dealt with the issues, uh, how to handle your finances, dealing with conflict and in-laws and whatnot. But, but he didn't even mention a word about the spiritual challenge of marriage. That is that we see a side of ourselves that we didn't know existed. And I had this image going into marriage that I was a pretty laid back, polite, nice kind of a guy. And others had told me about that, told me that about um, myself. In fact, when I graduated from junior high, they had Hall of Fame pictures at the end of the year. I, I don't know, do you do that down here at all, junior high and high school? If you don't, you're probably familiar with the categories they had most likely to succeed, and I certainly wasn't under that. Uh, most popular, not a chance. Uh, most athletic, look at me. I mean, I- I- in my dreams. Uh, but way down in the bottom left-hand corner, if you look carefully, there is my picture right under the title, Most Polite. <laughs> Every junior high boy's dream, right? You know, you're, yes, Most Polite, I got it. I mean, I, I knew it was kind of the geeky title, but I also have to confess that's sort of the image I have of myself. I'm not a type A personality. I'm the third of four kids. I'm more laid back. I don't like to be in charge. I don't want to be in charge. Just, hey, let's just settle down. We'll have a good time. Well, I was surprised at how soon marriage exposed an entirely different side of me. And I was able to run from it as a single because if I wasn't getting along well with the roommate in college, you just hang on until the college year ends. And now I was in a relationship where I couldn't just change partners at the end of every school term. And I was surprised at how some of the most insignificant issues could actually become problems. In fact, one of the first issues my wife and I faced were ice cube trays. The family I grew up in, if you got out an ice cube, you're supposed to fill the tray and put it back in the freezer so the next person has a nice full tray of ice cubes. And I'm convinced that's the biblical way to handle yourself (laughs) in the kitchen. My wife, unfortunately, grew up in a family that run those things down to an ice chip, right? If, if there's something you could scrape off with a knife, you weren't morally obligated to refill the tray and put it back in the freezer. So as a new husband, not only did I have to become familiar with drinking warm Pepsi, I, I had to deal with my complete inability to explain to my new bride how much of my joy and happiness in life depended on having this nice full tray of ice cubes. I just couldn't make her understand how important it was. And so one night she was speaking romantically to me and I thought, here's my chance, right? She said, Gary, I'm going to love you forever. I looked at her and said, honey, I, I don't need you to love me forever. I need you to love me for seven seconds. She looked she said, what are you talking about? I said, I timed how long it takes to fill an ice cube tray and to put it in the... 
Now, if that sounds pathetic to you, it sounds just as pathetic to me, but that is actually what marriage often does. If you told that junior high or high school or college boy that followed that, that something as insignificant as ice cube trays would actually become an issue in my marriage, I'm not sure I would have believed it. But see, I don't think I'm the only one that goes through this because I've talked to a number of people where their marriages haven't made it. And when you can get them to a time of real honesty and vulnerability, often what you'll find is they'll, they'll admit they're very frustrated with their ex-spouse. And many times rightly so. But healing comes when they also recognize that they are also ashamed of who they were in that relationship. Do you know what I'm talking about here? They, they said things, they did things, they never could have imagined themselves saying or doing those things. And the natural human temptation when we face that is want to run to someone else who hasn't seen our stuff. And next time we're going to try harder. Next time we're going to work a little bit more. And maybe we can bring a different person into the relationship. But any of you that have done that know it's not quite that simple. And this whole self-revelation about who we really are as a part of marriage really began to open my eyes up that maybe there was an entirely different purpose for marriage than one I realized before. I remember having a conversation with my older brother. Uh, he hadn't been married yet, but he was talking to me. And I said, Jerry, I, I think having been married for a little bit, I have a little better understanding of what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he addressed marriage. As if I could summarize it, it might go like this. If, if your goal in life is just to serve Jesus, I said, stay single. Because marriage takes far more time and energy and effort than I could ever imagine it would take. But if your goal in life isn't just to serve Jesus, but to become like Jesus, I said, get married. Because I've never experienced anything like marriage. It not only brings your stuff to the surface, but just as importantly, it gives you a place where you can work on it, where you can learn to forgive and ask for forgiveness, where you can learn to serve, where you have all of those qualities that God calls us to. It's like this gymnasium where we can begin to see it happen. The challenge is, this isn't an easy process. Dying to ourselves crucifying our pride, becoming servants instead of selfish people is very painful. And it's difficult. Now, it might surprise some of you, but I would like to suggest that the Bible promises us marriage will be very difficult. Often in the church, because we want to present the reality of Christ and the power of Christ, I think we shade the truth sometimes in this sense that, that all you need to do is hear this sermon or read this book and your marriage will be a breeze. Well, the Bible is a little more honest than that. I want you to look at this little six-word phrase in the book of James where he confesses how difficult marriage is going to be in context, not talking about marriage, but we can certainly apply it there. James says this, we all stumble in Many ways. We all stumble in many ways. I want you to think about the implications of the words all and many. What does all mean? Well, it means it's universal. There is not a person to whom this doesn't apply, which means if you're so frustrated with your current spouse, you said you're going to trade them in for a newer, improved model, you put out the word, let's say you get 200 prospective candidates. You put them through a battery of psychological tests. The computer spits out 12 semifinalists. 
You have friends and family members interview the semifinalists. They give you three finalists. You spend two years dating them and getting to know them. And then at the end of that process, you spend two weeks praying and fasting. And then finally you make your choice. If you believe scripture, you still end up with somebody who stumbles. How often? In many ways. Yeah, probably different ways than your current spouse, but many ways nonetheless. And yet I find that so often we are surprised when we find out that we married somebody who really does stumble in many ways. And we find out it's so difficult because we bring our sin and they bring their sin and, and, and we're struggling and we think somehow it's supposed to be easy and, and somehow there's something wrong with our marriage when it's not easy. I had a woman come up to me one time. She started with saying, Gary, I'm, I'm in a very difficult marriage and I just need to know. And I just butt in right there. I butted in. I, I stopped and said, look, you don't have to tell me you're in a difficult marriage. I said, that's redundant. If marriage is one person who stumbles in many ways, getting together with another person who stumbles in many ways, occasionally having sex and creating little people who stumble in many ways, I said... What makes you think that's going to be easy? And what makes you think that you have a uniquely difficult relationship? It's not easy for us to go through this. It's something that we have to face. Now, because of this reality, I'm going to take an entirely different approach this weekend and tonight. And then when we come back tomorrow evening, most views of marriage are based along what I call the how-to model. How do we keep romance fresh and fun? How do we learn to communicate? How do we meet our spouse's needs? And and I'm not talking that down at all. Please don't misunderstand. I think there's some very valuable information, some skills you would do well to learn to help improve your marriage. But I found that without the heart to, the how to doesn't help so much. This reality that we all stumble in many ways means as a church we have to consider how do we preserve the heart to so that we still care about our marriages when the spiritual reality presents itself. You see, without the heart to, you can have all the how-to knowledge in the world. You can know your spouse's love language backwards and forwards. You can know his needs and her needs. You can know he needs respect and she needs love. But if you don't care... If you've lost the heart to, you can use that knowledge of their love language as a weapon by maliciously withholding it. Without the heart to, you can have all the knowledge in the world and it's not going to help. But if you have the heart to, I bet you figure out the how to. I don't have to lecture an infatuated couple that they need to talk. All they do is talk. You try to pull them apart and they text. I mean, that's what they do. I I don't have to lecture an infatuated couple that you really should resolve your conflict before you go to sleep. They think it's the most bizarre thing in the world that they could possibly sleep if they weren't sure that everything was good in the relationship. Because they have the heart to, they naturally do the how to. So we're going to look at the spiritual challenge. How do we preserve the all-important heart to? In our marriages. I'm just going to begin it this morning. The first step I want to suggest that we need to do is to rediscover the purpose of marriage. To look at this spiritual transformation that I've been talking about. Um, because what it led me to do is ask that, there, that, that maybe there's a deeper reason behind why God created marriage. Why knowing it would be a difficult relationship, he still ordained it and calls about 90% of us to live our life in that relationship. 
Now, I didn't choose marriage for the purpose that I'm about to talk about. I didn't design marriage to have this purpose. But just when I noticed a spiritual transformation taking place, I had to ask myself the question, you know, I I might want marriage to be easier. I I might want marriage at times to be more fun. But what if God didn't design marriage to be an easy relationship? What if he had another purpose in mind? And if the spiritual formation is taking place, what if, in fact, God designed marriage to make us holy even more than to make us happy? I'm not suggesting in any sense that that happiness and holiness are opposites. In fact, I, I believe the opposite of that. I think the holier you live, the happier, ultimately, the more joy you're going to have. But can I accept that marriage might be one of the life situations God calls me to, to help me die to my selfishness and my pride and and to put on the righteousness of Christ and the gentleness of Christ and the, the kindness of Christ? Who will that affect if I'm single, why I get married and, and who I marry? And if I'm already married, how will it affect why I stay married and how I act as a married man? I'm not suggesting that this is the only purpose of marriage or even necessarily the main purpose of marriage. Just I have limited time this morning. And I think it is a purpose that probably gets the least attention. And so it's one that I kind of want to focus on this morning. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 7.1. This is one of many verses from this perspective where Paul gives us pretty clear commands as believers. He says this, Let us purify... What's that fourth word? Does he say, let us purify our kids? Parents, wouldn't we love it? If let, let's, our focus should be on purifying our kids. Does he say, let us purify our spouses? Does he say, let us purify all the other drivers on the highway as we shout out to them how they should really be driving? Paul said, the focus of a believer is this. Let us purify ourselves. And now, it's not just from the, the scandalous sins that he's talking about here. It's not just from the very wild sins that we often think about that we're okay as believers. Because Paul understands that sin hits us much deeper than we realize. In fact, um, James, who we mentioned earlier, had a perspective. I think the reason James was so sensitive to the fact that we all stumbled in many ways comes from his upbringing. A, a lot of you know this. But he grew up literally in the same household as Jesus. Of course, they didn't have the same father. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But for our points, the the important point is that they had the same mother. And, and, And so literally living with a perfect man gave James a view of what moral perfection is really like that, that we lack. I mean, think about this. Imagine living with a brother who's literally perfect you imagine how frustrating that would be? You get disciplined, you get punished, and here's Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. Never once does he mess up. I could imagine James getting so frustrated, he gets his brothers and sisters together, they decide they're going to set up a sting and really get Jesus, right? So they call out to Mary in the middle of the afternoon, and James is the leader. He said, Mom, Jesus pushed me. And I say, James, Jesus would never push you. I, I know where he came from. I can't believe you would bear false witness against your brother. And now he really gets in trouble. And, and James is so frustrated. But then he writes to the church that verse that we said before. Look, as an adult, 
I've lived with a perfect man. I've seen literal moral perfection, the attitudes, the, the, the way he takes advantages of opportunities to love. And if you had lived with a perfect man as I have, you would know that you and me, the best of us on our best day, stumble in many ways. The problem is, why we don't think 2 Corinthians 7, 1 is so needed, is that we don't compare ourselves to Jesus like James did. We try to find the worst example. As guys, well, I may not be Jesus, but I'm not Charlie Sheen. <laughs> I may not be Mother Teresa, but I'm not Miley Cyrus. I mean, that, that, we're really trying to go to the margins and say, I, and James, he doesn't play that game. He says, you know what? When we look at Jesus, there's so much room for us to grow. And in that context, Paul writes 2 Corinthians 7, 1, which makes so much sense. Let us purify ourselves. We have so much work to purify ourselves. We can't focus on others. And it's from everything, everything that contaminates body and spirit, not just the gross physical sins, but that sense of pride and entitlement and impatience and unkindness and resentment. And then I love this phrase, perfecting holiness. That's an encouragement to me because it means I'm never going to get there. You don't perfect something that's already perfect, but it is a process. And he says we do this out of reverence for God. We'll get to that last phrase in a little bit. The Bible calls us to a serious pursuit of Christ-likeness. And I found in this generation, that's a message we just don't want to hear. Today's Christian is more concerned with our salvation. Am I going to heaven or not? Yesterday's believers tended to be more concerned about their holiness, whether they were more like Christ or not. And you know what? That distinction makes all the difference. Unfortunately, I know I'm sort of out of date by talking about this. The best-selling books, the, the popular speakers are just talking about, no, we don't need to take spiritual growth seriously. Jesus has done it all. We live by grace, for which I 100% agree. But the same grace that saves me is the grace that compels me and invites me to become like my Savior. It's this amazing invitation where Paul would say, you can learn how to handle your anger in a way that builds people up instead of tears them down. You can learn to become more patient as Christ is more patient. You can be more courageous. Just this morning I was reading in John chapter 19. And this passage I've read more times than I can count just jumped out at me. It was just that one sentence where, where it says that the soldiers came with their knives and their lanterns and their torches. And it says, Jesus, knowing full well all that was about to happen to him, stepped forward and said, whom do you seek? He, he could have run away. He could have hid. He could have tried to make them blind and go. Jesus knew full well the cross is ahead of him. And with courage, he steps forward and says, here I am. And I read that and I said, Lord, I, I want that courage. If there's a tough conversation with one of my kids... There's a tough conversation with a friend and I know it's going to get ugly and they're going to resent me and I want to just keep quiet. Lord, I want the courage of Jesus. Paul says we can be perfected. We can, we can be purified from our fears, from our self-interest. But it's because we're often not in this pursuit. We don't take this seriously. We have this spiritual emptiness and so I believe we often ask more of our marriages than God designed him to give. 
We don't see ourselves as brother or sister in Christ. We see each other really as, you've got to fulfill me. I'm not finding this fulfillment in God. I'm not finding the drama of a life of pursuing Christ's likeness and the mission that God has given me. You've got to make me happy. And what happens then is that we become infatuated with infatuation and our marriages can't bear that burden. Let me talk about a little bit of science that I shared with the singles last night because I think it's just as important for married people to understand infatuation as it is for singles. We know so much more about our human brains now than we did even 20 years ago. They've developed new instruments and new ways of looking at the chemical interaction of our brains. And one of the understandings that's come out of that is that infatuation is an intense process, but it can't last more than about 12 to 18 months. It's not designed to, and yet how many people evaluate the strength of their marriage by whether they feel as intensely about their spouse as they did once? I'm sorry, but unless you are literally brain damaged, you can't. Your, Your brain isn't designed to sustain that experience. And, and boy, if some of you married men listen to nothing else I say this weekend, this could spare you so much trouble. Just understanding this can help you be true. Did you know that 87% of men who cheat on their wives want to go back after the affair is over? Think about that. Nine out of ten men, basically, rounding it up just a little bit, will wake up one day and say, I've just made the biggest mistake of my life. The infatuation made everything seem so glorious and their wife and their family so unimportant and so boring, not realizing that just as they went through the infatuation with their wife, they're going through the infatuation with someone else. And men, seriously, if you knew it was going to pass as they always do, would you really risk tearing apart your kid's home? Losing your reputation, hurting this woman, giving your kids that insecurity when you know it's only going to be a few delicious months and you're going to go right back and wake up and say, I I can't believe what we've done. And I say this because I, I, I want to warn singles as well as married people. I've just seen it too often with guys my age, late 40s, early 50s. They get bored in their marriages. They don't know how to speak to their wives. They don't know how to bring up the issue. They don't know how to address it. So they have this affair, often with some 20-something single woman, because he seems so wise and he's got more money and wealth and he's so much more mature than the 20-something she's been dating. So she gets lost in him. And then, look, I'm warning you, single women, they almost always go back to their wives. And you're left in a pile. You thought he loved you. And you wake up, He was using you. And men my age, it is just evil that we try to use single women as fertilizer to kickstart our own marriages. And I always rejoice when the marriage is reunited and the home is put back together, give glory to God. But God doesn't have to destroy a single woman to rescue a marriage. And if we could just understand the process of this, perhaps we could be better stewards of infatuations and know we can't let it run our life. We shouldn't let it define our marriage. But if we don't understand this difficulty of marriage and then marriage proves to be difficult, we start to freak out when it's difficult as if there's something wrong. I I call them shell-shocked newlyweds. Uh, People married less than a year coming to me in a full-scale panic 
Because marriage proved to be far more difficult than they ever thought it would be. And so their natural assumption is they must have married the wrong person. Now, they never say to me, you know what? I was naive about marriage. I didn't understand the challenge. For whatever reason, their earlier view of marriage is sacred. They won't even question it. Instead, it's if I would have married someone else, then I would have the easy marriage I I thought I would have. And I want to say to them, look, if you had married someone else, you'd be stumbling in different ways, but you'd still be stumbling. See, our expectations of what we think marriage is going to be like has a huge impact on our satisfaction once we are married. Here's an analogy that might help. One of my first times in Houston, Texas, I, I, I live there now, but back then I was just traveling through and I'd rented a car to drive out to a church where I was going to speak. And I saw something at the airport that I've never seen in any other airport rental place. They had these really nice pickup trucks. Looked brand new. Extended canopies, covered beds. And usually at airports, they just have commuter cars. But I saw them. I thought, well, maybe it's a Texas thing or something. I, I didn't know. So I go up to the counter. And he pulls up my reservation. He said, Mr. Thomas, did you see the trucks we had outside? I said, I did. They look really nice. He said, for $12 a day, I could upgrade you into one of those trucks. Now, I've traveled enough to know they'll often ask you that if they're out of your class of car and they have to upgrade you for free if they don't have your car because they have to give you something. And so I said, you know what? A church is reimbursing me. I don't want to charge them more for that. So I'll just take whatever you've got. He said, okay. Started typing. I thought, well, it didn't work that time, but I gave it a shot, right? He gets done, gives me the paperwork, gives me the keys. Your vehicle's in space G4. Take the keys, walk outside. As soon as I get close enough to G4 to see what's going on, huge smile breaks out on my face because, in fact, he had upgraded me to one of those trucks. And here's how pathetic I am. That made my day right there, all right? You know, I hadn't spoken to anyone. I hadn't sold a single book, but I was going to get to drive around in a truck instead of this little car. Now, it's not like I needed a truck. I just had a small little overnight bag. But if I needed to throw a deer carcass in there, <laughs> pull out a tree stump or something, I mean, I'm, I'm good to go. Now, let's say I would rented a truck. Again, I, I wouldn't even think to do that in an airport, but just for the sake of argument. Then I see a truck. I'm not going to be immediately satisfied, am I? I'm probably going to open it up. Anybody smoked in here? Does it have satellite radio? Or let's say I was really into cars. I'm not. But let's say I want to drive a luxury vehicle or Mercedes-Benz or a BMW. Then he gives me my keys. I go out to G4 and I see this pickup truck. I might even be offended. I'm saying, what's up with this truck? Do I look like a guy who drives a truck? You want to put a gun rack in the back window and a dog to sit next to me? Where's my Beamer? I realize I just described half of your husbands, all right? But I'm sure they're much manlier than I am coming from Seattle. But here's the point I want to make. The exact same vehicle elicits three entirely different reactions based solely on what? Expectations. And that's what creates shell-shocked newlyweds. They go into marriage expecting a Mercedes-Benz and they wake up with a Geo Prism. (laughs) Now, if you've been walking for three or four years, that Geo Prism is going to feel like a gift from God. You can drive to the grocery store. You don't have to walk in the rain. If you're expecting to go zero to 60 in anything less than 20 seconds, you're going to be really frustrated. I know I used to own one, all right? I, I, I know what I'm talking about. 
And I think that's what happens with marriage, that he provides it as a great avenue for us to have a great spiritual purpose, but it doesn't do what we think it should do. And so we go to our normally imperfect marriages and say, it's just not worth much because we value something. We think there's a different purpose behind marriage. Matthew 6.33 gives us this all-important passage where Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. If I want to live for that, He says, Seek what first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. If I value that, I will value a marriage that helps me grow in righteousness. And I don't know anything other than marriage that will help you grow in righteousness except having kids after you've been married. That will really challenge you as well. And so then I'll value it. People who resent the difficulty of marriage without understanding this purpose sort of remind me of the people who drive around the health club trying to find a close parking place, right? You know, you're kind of forgetting the purpose here. It's about getting in shape. And if I value getting in shape spiritually, I'm going to value a relationship that might challenge me with patience and, and kindness. The second thing I want to mention is that we need to turn our marriage into worship. Now that might scare some of you, but let me explain what I mean. When we connect worship and marriage, I think we really look at marriage from an entirely different dimension. Most of you don't have a clue who you married. And I'm not just talking about the fact that that they have different sides that you hadn't seen before. I'm talking spiritually. We often neglect to look at just who it is we're married. But let's look at what the Bible says about who you're married to. 1 John 3, 1 says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. You married someone that God looks at as as his daughter or his son. And these aren't just children. These aren't just estranged children. According to Ephesians 5.1, you married a dearly loved child. Someone that God dearly loves and is passionate about. And I'll never forget one moment in prayer when I was not being the best of husbands. And I really sensed God challenging me saying, Gary, Lisa isn't just your wife. She's my daughter. And I expect you to treat her accordingly. And you know what? When I had kids, I got it. Because if you want to get on my good side, all you have to do is be good to one of my kids. If you do something nice to my kid, you give my kid a break, you give him a present, you make him smile, I'm going to love you to the end of the earth because you did something for one of my kids. Conversely, if you want to get on my bad side... Just be mean to one of my kids, neglect one of my kids, abuse one of my kids. My blood pressure will go up if I even hear your name because I'd rather you mess with me than mess with one of my kids. I I tried to explain with the singles last night about how the experience of just having my oldest daughter, when my wife gave birth, and I immediately stopped being a pacifist. I, I thought I'd made this biblical case about how we can't have violence of any kind. And then I looked at that little girl and I realized, without considering any other passage, that if anybody dared touch her, I would be doing prison ministry from the inside, right? And then when I realized that God looks at my wife as his daughter with the same passion, the same concern, everything about my marriage 
changed. We talk a lot about God as our Heavenly Father, which is a foundational Christian doctrine. But if you want to transform your marriage, meditate on God as Father-in-law. Because He is. God becomes our Father-in-law. And that changes the way we look at being married to somebody who stumbles in many ways. I know my kids stumble. I know how my kids stumble. But I still really want them to be loved. I remember when my son was just going into college. He's now graduated. But, but, but just as he's going into college, he hadn't had a girlfriend yet. But I remember telling him, Bud, I can tell you the first three fights you're going to have with your future wife. I, I know him that well. And when he got a girlfriend that he's now engaged to, the, one of their first fights was on that list. I can tell you which will mo- what will most exasperate my future sons-in-laws, what, what they'll have to put up with, what they'll have to endure with each one of my daughters. I mean, more and more blessings than you could imagine, but, but some challenges. I, I know them that well. Which is why if they would just let me pick, I think I could probably do a pretty good job for them in finding someone to marry. But I have prayed for my kids as I know you have prayed for yours. God, would you please send my son a woman who will love him and honor him and respect him. I know he can stumble in many ways, but he'll always be my boy. And God, will you send my daughters, men who will still adore them and protect them and love them and make them feel safe and support them, even though I know sometimes they might have an attitude or sometimes they might do this, but it is almost scary to me how desperately I want my kids to be loved. And the reality is there are three people on the face of this earth that could make me one of the happiest men who've ever lived, not by ever doing anything for me. If they will just love my kids well, I'll be so satisfied because that's what I desire. And every parent in here knows exactly what I'm talking about. And it was this understanding that really helped me understand a passage from 1 Peter 3, 7 that had confused me for so long. Because writing to men, Peter says this, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And and I didn't get that because it seems like I, I should pray to have a better marriage. And Peter turns it around and says, Actually, you need to have a better marriage so that you can pray. And it didn't make sense to me until I began to realize God is my heavenly father-in-law. It makes total sense. Let me turn it around to analogy. Let's say there's a guy that says, Gary, I so respect you. I'm going to give you 10% of my income. I'm going to read your books. I'm going to memorize your books. I'm going to tell everybody about your books. I'm going to write some songs and there'll be songs about you. They'll be praising you. I know that would be sick in my... But but just get to... But I knew this same man was making one of my daughters miserable through his abuse or through his neglect. He was making her life what felt like a living hell. If there was a man that was doing that, I would only have one conversation with him. Hey, buddy, if you respect me, if you care for me at all, you take care of my little girl, then we can talk. I have nothing to say to you as long as you're doing this to my daughter. I have nothing else that I want to talk. That is agenda point number one until it's taken care of. And I realized the day that I got married, God became my heavenly father-in-law. I cannot worship him by making his daughter miserable. That's one of the worst ways to hurt him is to do that. 
And so when you put that in light of marrying somebody who stumbles in many ways, it completely changes your perspective. Women, I know some of you married this guy dreaming of long, soulful discussions late into the night. And six months into your marriage, you woke up to the reality that you married a guy who wouldn't know an emotion if it bit him on the nose until he bled. And, and I get your frustration. I can understand your disappointment. But if you could only understand how much joy God had on your wedding day when he thought, my son has found a good woman who will love him. She's going to help him become more than he can be rather than tearing him down, which would tear me apart. She's going to build him up. She's going to support him. She's going to encourage him. And guys, we might have married these women out of selfish motives, missing the attitude because we were infatuated, not realizing that they might have something like breast cancer or Alzheimer's in their future. We might want to initially say, I I, I didn't sign up for this. And I hope we could hear our Heavenly Father-in-law saying, if only you could know the happiness you gave me when I realized my daughter had found a good man who will stay by her, who will support her, who will protect her, who will be over her, who will be loyal to her. When I think of what my Savior has given me, not just creating me so that I have life, not just making me a squirrel, but a person. He could have made me a squirrel. He could have made me a stupid squirrel, eating nuts. He made me a person. And then he saved me. He fought through my rebellion. And he continues to forgive me on a daily basis. And then he says, Gary, out of reverence for me, will you love my daughter as I have loved you? Can I deny him that? Can you deny your heavenly father-in-law that? Yeah, they stumble in many ways. But there is no way my wife can stumble against me as much as I have stumbled against God. And so when Paul tells me to purify myself from all that icky stuff out of reverence for God, to love her out of reverence for God, it changes my marriage completely brother and sister in Christ, becoming more like Christ, turning our marriage into worship. Tonight, we're going to get into two more issues. We're going to talk about how, now that we've removed the Hollywood notion of love and romance, what is the biblical notion? How is there a sacred history that two people build together? How do we keep pursuing each other through the years? We're then going to look at how God looks at our marriage, that I should say looks at our greatest need as something 180 degrees differently from us that will also cause us to value our marriage. And then tomorrow evening, we're going to look at how this transforms the sexual relationship within marriage. So I hope you'll be willing to come back for that. Let's pray. Father, no one knows marriage like you. You not only created it, but you've literally had a front row seat for every marriage that has ever occurred. There's no inside joke that you don't get. There's no point of pain that you haven't lived through with us. Lord, we've tried to accept what the world says marriage is all about. I pray that we could instead embrace what your scriptures tell us it's about. I pray that you could remake marriages here in northern Arkansas. Lord, I pray that you would renew spiritual passion. 
I pray, Lord, that you would pull us away from doing those things that would destroy our family and destroy ourselves and call us back to our first love to you and then to each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.